Quick word of warning, this first story has various instances of suicide and one very graphic depiction of an attempted suicide. If that's something you're uncomfortable with, feel free to skip this one. Just go to the timestamp on screen right now. The following account was recovered by Japanese explorers back in 2019 during an expedition to the South Pole. Due to a concerned effort by the U.S. government to censor the information disclosed here, I will not be revealing my sources nor the names of the explorers who originally found it. Feel free to read on and draw your own conclusions. American writer of horror fiction best known for his creation of the Cthulhu mythos, H.P. Lovecraft, once said, The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. An iconic quote to be certain, yet I must respectfully disagree with Mr. Lovecraft. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind isn't fear of the unknown. It's our obsession with understanding it. Fear is but a stepping stone to be conquered. Curiosity, on the other hand, is relentless, uncompromising. It is our curiosity that defines us as a species, and it is said curiosity that will eventually be our downfall. My name is Monika Schulz. I'm originally from Germany, but I was scouted fairly early in my fledging career. I'm a marine biologist uh, of sorts. I work for a subdivision of the U.S. government that specializes in the discovery and study of anomalous aquatic life. My occupation might seem oddly specific at first, but you can rest assured that we exist for a reason. Keep listening, and you'll soon find out why. You've probably heard of the infamous bloop at some point in your life. In the unlikely event that you haven't, the bloop was a powerful, ultra-low frequency underwater sound of uncertain origin detected by the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration in 1997. It was a recurring topic of discussion by both scientists and the media alike for over a decade until in 2012 when the NOAA went on to disprove some of the bolder theories, stating that the sound appears to be consistent with noises generated via Arctic glacial movements. Or, at least that's the explanation they came up with after we pressured them into covering it up. The reason we did that is because earlier that same year, the sound was detected again. However, this time we had the modern equipment necessary to pinpoint the general location of its source. An expedition was promptly organized. When the first sets of data and images came back, none of us knew how to react. I can only imagine how the first scientists must have felt once they realized the sheer scale of what resided directly below them. Now, I've made my fair share of unconventional discoveries over the years. Ancient sunken cities, deep-sea creatures that border on the mythical, entire ecosystems comprised of bizarre, downright alien flora and fauna, and yet, nothing could have prepared me for what we ended up finding down there, dwelling in the cold depths of the southern ocean beneath its expansive sheet of ice. I could hardly tell what I was looking at initially, but it was clearly massive in scale, even from a distance. The probe could only fit a fraction of its mass in a single frame. It resembled an enormous blob of blubbery, pinkish flesh, suspended less than a mile from the bottom of the ocean. With the aid of different echo-sounding measurement techniques, on-site personnel were able to determine that the globular structure appeared to be occupying a space of about one kilometer. You don't have to be an expert to know that an organism of such a ridiculous size shouldn't exist. In spite of that, further research proved that it was indeed organic in nature, single-handedly demolishing a lot of our preconceived notions about the reality of life on Earth. Thus began Project Ultra Fauna. 
Our purpose was to study and understand this impossible organism which we later dubbed Creus, after one of the titans in Greek mythology. Back at the start of 2013, I was deployed to our newly established base in Antarctica. I wasn't the sole researcher there, but I was the most experienced, especially in my particular field. The privilege of studying such a phenomenon up close and personal more than made up for the unpleasant work conditions. In a way, I saw this opportunity as the culmination of my entire career. The first order of business was to install a 24-7 underwater surveillance system around the subject. This proved to be a challenge given its colossal size and the depth at which it resided. Thankfully, its movement seemed extremely restricted, limited to the clusters of thin tendrils and appendage-like growths scattered across its otherwise dormant mass, each possessing a maximum reach of about 200 meters. Initial observations determined their function to be primarily defensive. One of our drones was immediately ensnared, crushed, and torn apart upon attempting to collect a sample. Creus reacted much the same when approached by other sea life as well, though it didn't utilize any of the material left behind. There were literal whale carcasses just left to float there, decomposing at the bottom of the abyss. This posed the question as to how something so absurdly giant could even sustain itself to begin with. Apart from its pseudo-tentacles, the surface of Creus was an expanse of smooth, pulsating flesh. No orifice to be seen. One of my colleagues proposed an interesting theory. Perhaps its outermost layer acted as a filter, and its source of food was the microorganisms and bacteria it deliberately cultivated by leaving behind dead tissue. Of course, we couldn't confirm any of that without a sample, and the idea that an entity of such immense scale survived solely on a diet of microorganisms was far-fetched, to say the least. It didn't seem to produce any waste that we could analyze either. We attempted sending multiple drones out at once, each approaching from a different angle, but the result was the same every time. They were destroyed as soon as they got within 200 meters of Creus. Government funding or not, we couldn't just keep throwing expensive tech at it and hoping for the best. It was around this time that we had the first incident. His name was Gregory, one of our lead engineers. I'd always known him to be a reserved and stoic man, an old-fashioned professional, so imagine my surprise when he kicked open the door to the monitoring station and threatened all of us at gunpoint. He looked completely out of his mind, slapping the side of his head with one hand while holding the gun with another, spewing nonsense that we couldn't decipher. There were already traces of blood splattered across his face and overalls, which we later found out were from the guard he ambushed with a pipe wrench before stealing his sidearm. Upon noticing the large screen that displayed a grid of all the video feeds we had of Creus, he let out the most pitiful wail I'd ever heard a man produce and opened fire on the equipment. We took cover as sparks and bullets began to fly, and I winced every time something flew over my head, half expecting it to graze my skull. Whatever his true motives were, he did manage to destroy a significant chunk of our hardware before shoving the barrel in his own mouth and pulling the trigger. He didn't get the quick and painless death he was likely hoping for either. His aim was a bit too off-center and he ended up blowing half his jaw off instead. Of course, the poor bastard was already presumed dead by the time security finally showed up, slumped against the wall and sitting in a pool of his own blood. All research was temporarily put on hold while we waited for the replacement equipment to arrive. That, and naturally, we needed some time to recover from the ordeal. Like I mentioned before, Gregory was always known as the reliable veteran, the grumpy old-timer who'd seen it all. I couldn't even begin to speculate as to what could have driven him to such a state. The next similar incident was with our lead physician, 
Dr. Lee, who had apparently locked herself in the sick bay and refused to come out. After she had altogether stopped responding, on-site security were called to manually disable the lock, only to find her limp body sprawled across the exam table, half clutching a syringe. Her colleagues were immediately able to conclude that she'd committed suicide via lethal injection of pentobarbital. Prior to taking her life, she'd also seized what medical supplies she could and tried to dispose of them by stuffing them down a toilet. And then, there was my assistant, Bryce. From what I told, he was caught trying to overload the central heating system and not wanting to be captured and interrogated, used a piece of glass to slit his own throat. In addition to the alarming frequency at which they were occurring, each of these suicides seemed to double as deliberate attempts to sabotage our efforts. All the victims had close to nothing in common, trying to establish some sort of connection between them quickly proved to be a hopeless endeavor. This was becoming as precious a resource as any. The bigwigs back home were starting to get impatient. Admittedly, we hadn't made much progress. It was difficult to focus on the job when you didn't know if the person next to you was teetering on the verge of a manic episode. We started hearing rumors that the military were itching to get involved, as they viewed the existence of Krius as a matter of national and global security. Don't ask me how they came to such a conclusion. Our reports certainly didn't reflect their concerns. Regardless, we were given an ultimatum. We had exactly two months to figure out what Krius was and how it worked. Otherwise, we'd be taken off the project and well, likely terminated in order to prevent a leak. The pressure was on. I only slept for about three hours every other day. To say that most of us were running on fumes would have been an understatement. We were like walking automatons, going through the motions we were programmed to do and wasting little energy on anything else. Adding to the oppressive atmosphere was the arrival of the winter season, which... Here means weeks of near-perpetual darkness. It almost came as no surprise when another death was confirmed. The victim was a fellow researcher who was found dead in his cabin, lying naked in the middle of it with a large horizontal slice across his stomach and covered in multiple punctures. A quick toxicology report coupled with the empty pill bottles found littering his bed and nightstand suggested that the initial course of death was likely voluntary. Of course, that also meant that all the injuries were done by somebody post-mortem. They were far too surgical and severe to be self-inflicted. The cut in the man's abdomen in particular seemed to have been forcefully stretched to open. Somebody had been picking through his guts and using the residue to finger paint on the claustrophobic cabin's singular window. Though I wasn't present, nor was I allowed anywhere near the victim's quarters since it technically wasn't my job to look into such matters, I did see a recreation of the grisly drawing, if you can even call it that. I'm not sure how to exactly describe it. It resembled a simple stick figure with extra arms and legs and enclosed in a larger circle. The whole thing was oddly ritualistic. Quite unlike the previous cases, it seemed more focused on inciting panic and disorder among the crew. The whole thing was oddly ritualistic. Quite unlike the previous cases that seemed more focused on inciting panic and discord among the crew. But, as unnerving as it was, I couldn't afford to dwell on it for too long. We were getting closer to our first breakthrough since I got here. One of our hydrophone arrays managed to isolate a low, almost radio-like frequency emanating from somewhere within Creus's core. Though I wouldn't call it electronic in nature, it was downright alien. No wonder we hadn't noticed it previously. It was a bold assumption, but could this constant, near, undetectable sound be the reason why people were killing themselves? 
The prospect of certain sound patterns affecting one's mental state isn't exactly a foreign concept, especially if you happen to work for the U.S. government. Like the tendrils, perhaps this was just another defense mechanism, albeit a more subtle one. In the wake of this new revelation, an idea emerged. What if we were to try and replicate the signal? The goal was to elicit some sort of reaction, or possibly even acknowledgement, from the immense creature. It was a stretch. But then again, we were already grasping at straws. Even if my assumption about the frequency's purpose was correct, it wasn't like they were going to prematurely end this project because of it. The mission was much too important. Fortunately, a couple of the staff had backgrounds in audio engineering, making the process a whole lot easier than it would have been otherwise. Not so fortunate was the fact that our work kept getting disrupted by the escalating number of suicides. By day 20 of our two-month deadline, nearly one-third of my research team were gone. People that looked completely stable one day were dead to the next. Some of the bodies were discovered in various stages of dissection, their blood used to decorate the walls with that same symbol. While the deaths themselves were impossible to predict, I couldn't help but wonder how our unnamed corpse desecrator kept getting away with it. There were cameras virtually everywhere. Surely somebody would have identified them. It was almost as if our overseers were allowing this madness to continue. I will never forget standing outside my room, coffee in hand, and looking down at the severed human finger lying at my doorstep. There was a crimson trail leading away from it and toward the shared bathroom. I knew that I was being baited, but I didn't care. My morbid curiosity outweighed my need for self-preservation. Whoever was doing this was clearly trying to show me something, and frankly, I was fed up with having more questions than answers. And so, like a good little lab rat, I followed the proverbial cheese trail to its source. As soon as I saw the door of those stalls hanging open, inviting me to peek inside, I already knew what I was going to find there. Sure enough, there it was. The body of the young man to whom the finger belonged to, stripped and propped against the toilet. His intestines spilled over his lap and onto the floor, forming a pile. His head hung at an angle, green eyes clouded and vacant. His face didn't seem too familiar. Maybe one of the maintenance boys? There was a scalpel left embedded in his throat, likely the primary cause of death, before the body was further mutilated. Painted onto the ivory tiles behind him was the, by that point, all-too-familiar calling card. A multi-limbed stick figure with a circle drawn around it, as though trapped within the boundaries of the shape. That's when the realization finally struck me. It was so obvious. How did I not think of it sooner? I practically sprinted out of the bathroom and down the dimly lit hallway. My heart was racing. Beads of anxious sweat trickled down my brow. I must have seemed deranged as I emerged into the mess hall where most of my crew were having breakfast. Before anyone could accuse me of having lost my mind, I snatched a hard-boiled egg from a colleague's tray and held it up to the fluorescent lights. It's an egg, I laughed. It's a goddamn egg. It made so much sense. Kreese wasn't just a vaguely spherical mass of writhing meat, but rather the organic vessel of the true titan waiting to be born. Its sole purpose was to sustain and protect whatever was developing inside of it, explaining its apparent lack of basic biological needs. I was immediately challenged on my rash deduction, but I was confident in its validity. I knew that I was right, and no one could convince me otherwise. Besides, I didn't need them to believe me so long as everyone did their job. As we approached the dreaded deadline, our research center started looking more like a slaughterhouse. 
It became commonplace to spot the dismembered remains of some poor fool decorating the corridors. The last time I saw a guard was them hanging from the ceiling via the cord wrapped around their neck. The comparatively saner among us had to take matters into our own hands when it came to safeguarding our progress. Finally, on May 26, 2013, we deployed the transmitter. We wanted to sink it as close to the subject as possible before turning it on. The tension in the control room was palpable. What little remained of the original crew were gathered around the central monitor. This was it. We had neither the time, resources, nor staff to afford having to go back to the drawing board. The fate of the entire operation hinged on this final experiment. If it failed, everything we endured this far would have been for naught. I glanced at the dial in front of me and sighed. Turning up the amplifier, I announced to a completely silent audience. Obviously, we couldn't hear it, but we could see that the oversized speaker was beginning to vibrate. When viewed from above, it looked like an insignificant speck against the dark expanse of living tissue, the scale of which was still hard to believe. Come on, you bastard. Somebody muttered behind me, anxiously gnawing away at his knuckles. We waited and waited. Nothing happened. There were no spikes in the measurements, no visual signs of stirring. The subject was as passive as ever. It was a far-fetched idea from the start, yet we had convinced ourselves that it just had to work. It was the only thing keeping us going. All of the sacrifices, all of the casualties, there had to be some purpose to it all. After everything I've done, everything I've seen and been through, I wasn't going to let it end like this. I clenched my teeth and shoved past my distraught colleagues. None of them even acknowledged me until I picked up the radio. There were several military vessels patrolling the ocean around the frozen continent. Their purpose was to dissuade foreign powers from seizing a foothold, but I had other plans for them. This is Professor Scholz from Research Station B-55. If anybody hears me, please respond. It's an emergency. It took some convincing acting, but I was finally able to get in contact with the captain of one of the ships, to whom I proceeded to breathlessly explain that they had to launch an attack on Creus. My justification was that the giant creature had turned hostile and was in the process of releasing some sort of toxin into the water, which, in addition to the untold ecological consequences, threatened to reveal the entire operation to the rest of the world. I stressed that time was of the essence and that they needed to act now before it was too late. A few of my subordinates tried to stop me, but the rest that understood what must be done piled onto them and held them down. Several missiles were launched. The impact was something to behold. As I predicted, the torpedoes were immediately intercepted by grasping appendages, but the resulting explosion was enough to send ripples across the whole organic structure. After all, my goal wasn't to destroy it. It was to provoke it. We received word from the people stationed on the shore that they could feel the ice beneath them begin to rumble. The buzzing in the air became so loud that we could hear it without the aid of our audio equipment. This tinnitus-like ringing that just kept amplifying until I could no longer hear myself think. All of a sudden it ceased entirely, granting us a rare moment of unimpended clarity, during which I was able to reflect on what I'd just done. It would appear that the signal had been affecting all of us from the start, just in different ways. The men and women we lost understood its message for what it was, a warning to cease tampering with something that we could never hope to understand, followed by the realization that death is the only true escape from the inherent defect that is human curiosity. For others, a similar mindset to my own, 
It had the exact opposite and likely inadvertent effect of simulating our zealous obsession with knowing the unknowable and pursuing said knowledge at the expense of all else. Like moths to flames. I heard a familiar wail coming from the storage room adjacent to where we gathered. While the others remained glued to the screen, I stepped away from the console and went over to investigate. Hunched on the other side of that door was none other than Gregory, the engineer whose attempted suicide marked the start of our descent into madness. He appeared to have somehow survived, albeit with one half of his face stitched and stapled shut. Whoever had treated him hadn't done all that good of a job. The wounds looked infected to the point that they were leaking pus. His right eye was red and swollen, clearly impairing his vision. He was kneeling beside yet another recently disemboweled carcass and looking down at his bloody hands in horror. It would appear that I'd found our elusive artist. With the signal temporarily gone and its influence over our minds subsiding, the unfortunate wretch was confronted with the reality of his actions. He turned his hideous expression toward me in an almost pleading manner, as though expecting me to assure him that none of this was his fault, that he was too the instrument of some higher power that transcends our limited comprehension. And then it happened. The bloop. Just as I heard it countless times in recording, only much, much louder. I left Gregory to his lamenting and raced back to the control room. Bearing a few of its destroyed limbs that were already starting to regrow, the surface of Creus appeared overall intact. We hadn't even made a dent. All readings showed that it also wasn't what was producing the high amplitude sound. It was coming from somewhere else entirely. The radio crackled to life. Come in, B-55. We're detecting a large shape moving straight for us. Is the target... And that's the last we heard of them. I tried to re-establish contact with the rest of the patrol fleet, but nobody responded. The crew operating from the coastline described the sea as being deathly quiet. It was probably time just to call HQ, confess what had happened, and request an extraction. Just as I was about to take a moment to regain my faculties and think of what to do next, we received yet another transmission from the shore. Uh, Shulls? You might want to see this. The blurry face of the man in charge of handling the survey equipment appeared on our feed. He wiped the lens with his sleeve and turned the camera toward the ocean. At first, I didn't know what I was meant to be seeing exactly. The water was indeed eerily stagnant. It was as if I was looking at a murky pond, not a sea. Constellations lit up the sky, rivaling the moon with how brightly they shone. And then I finally made it out. There, in the distance, beyond the glaciers, was what looked like a giant... Uh, lamp post? It took me a minute to realize that one of the lights littering the sky was actually connected to a narrow stem that projected upwards from the ocean's surface. It blended so seamlessly with the view that I would have never noticed if it hadn't shifted ever so slightly. Once I did, however, I couldn't pry my eyes away from it. Its silver luminescence was intoxicatingly soothing, like the sweet song of a siren drawing you towards the center of a whirlpool. I can only imagine how alluring the dangling orb must have been in person. A few of the lads said they were going to go grab a boat and check it out. I told them it was a bad idea, but they wouldn't listen. One even got violent when I tried to stop them. Started swinging at me, the lunatic. The older man holding the camera explained. As a marine biologist, I'm not sure why it took me so long to realize what the thing obviously was. My best guess is that it was part of its intended effect on the viewer, overriding our senses and causing us to ignore the clear signs of danger in order to lure us in, much like an anglerfish lures its prey. Before I could yell at them to get the hell out of there, it was too late. 
All I could do was watch as the black ocean suddenly collapsed in on itself, revealing all the consuming maw that awaited beneath it. Teeth the size of radio towers broke the surface and eclipsed everything, eventually even the sky. To my absolute horror, I realized that we were looking at the inside of an enormous jaw, which meant that the rest of it was somewhere behind the camera. Dear God! Oh no! We heard the sound of ice cracking, followed by the panic scream of our comrades. Our perspective tilted and then turned to static. No, 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 no! Signal lost. One by one, all of our remaining feeds went dark as well. There was no point in trying to reach out again. The outpost was lost, swallowed by an eldritch monstrosity along with everybody there. It was all my fault. If my hypothesis was correct and Creus was indeed an egg, then logic dictates what we just glimpsed must have been that thing that laid it. It was probably just protecting its nest. Call it a feeding, but now that we've intruded on its territory, I don't think that it's going to stay put for much longer. Sooner or later, all of humanity will be reminded of how truly insignificant we are. It's just a matter of time. And, well, that's it. That's the story of everything that happened here. Nobody ever came to retrieve us. I guess the government's idea of disposing of us was to simply cut off all communications and leave us for dead. It's been close to two years now, surviving in the frozen wasteland. Most, if not all, of the others have either expired or gone insane. I've salvaged enough food to last me a couple of weeks, but I can't say the same for fuel, which is why I've decided that it's time to leave. If I'm going to freeze to death anyway, I'd rather be out there than in here. I'm leaving this file on my personal computer just in case somebody does find this place. To whomever is reading this, first of all, fuck you for not coming sooner, and second, you can find all my research in the hidden compartment below the desk. Hopefully the majority of it is still legible. Do with it what you will. As for me, it's time to get going. Be safe, and remember, if you happen to see a light out there, think twice before following it. I want to make tonight special, I said, gently placing the towel-covered box on the coffee table. Liz's eyes lit up and a mischievous smile curled her lips. Oh no, what'd you get? I racked my brain to figure out the perfect gift, I said, looping my arms around her waist. It had to be an endearing symbol of our love. Chocolates are digested too quickly and flowers wither and die within a week. They wouldn't suffice. You sure know how to build up the reveal, she said, inching closer. I released her with a dramatic flourish and swiftly yanked the towel off the box, revealing a ten-gallon aquarium. Liz leaned in for a look. You got me a fish? But there's no water. Not fish, I said. Crabs. Two hermit crabs. Before us were two of the most adorable crustaceans imaginable. Both of them had a pair of black dotted eyes, miniature red pincers, and a colorful spiked shell. Liz gasped and placed her hands in front of her mouth. My god, they're cuter than baby Yoda cuddling a kitten. I love them. She gave me an emphatic kiss on the lips and I felt all my pent-up tension finally loosen. I'm so glad. I wasn't sure how it would go and... Oh, shit. I dashed into the kitchen and just found the pasta boiling over. I lifted the pot off the burner and spilled hot foam onto the stove. It's okay, I shouted. Just a little mess. I picked up a wooden spoon and gave the bolognese sauce a quick stir. Also, the spaghetti is just about ready. 
As I dumped the noodles into the sink, I looked out the kitchen window and watched as a violent, howling wind swept up large snowflakes into a never-ending dance. It was a real blizzard out there, fiercer than anything I'd seen in a long while. I walked back to the living room and found Liz up to her elbow in the crab tank. Good thing we're not going out tonight, I said. Really crazy weather out there. All of a sudden, Liz withdrew her hand and hollered. God damn, that hurt. Little bastard caught me. What happened? Those little pincers. They don't look like much, but they are sharp. She held up an index finger and a red spot of blood began to bead. What are you trying to do? I asked. Pick one up? She pinched her lips, looking sheepish. No, I was trying to see if Weebo's shell came off like a suit. I put on a serious face. Firstly, do not remove their shells. They're not wearing suits, and they really don't like being naked. And secondly, Weebo? I grinned. Is that what you've named one? She nodded. (laughs) It's a nice name. What are we going to call the other one? She concentrated and hummed. Hmm. How about... Uh, Lenny Kravitz. I laughed and gave her a big hug. I feel like you've been waiting for this opportunity. Now wash your crab wound and come eat. Supper's ready. Soon after, we both sat down at the kitchen table. You went all out this time, Liz said, motioning toward the floral pattern cloth, folded napkins, and the slender white candle erect in the middle of the table. I sparked a match and held it against the candle's wick until it lit. At the same time, a strong gust of wind shook the house, causing the power to flicker. I'm so glad I bought candles, I said. Wouldn't be surprised if we lose power tonight. I wouldn't be so sad, Liz said, spiraling a spool of tomato-smeared noodles under her fork. We've got enough blankets to keep us warm and enough spaghetti to last us a month. (laughs) Yeah, I did make a lot of food, I said. Also, there's cake. We chowed down. I popped open a $12 bottle of rosé and poured us both large glasses. Soon, I was full and more than a little tipsy when, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a tiny creature inching its way towards us. Is that one of those crabs? I asked. How did it get out? I pushed out my chair, rubbed my distended belly, and walked toward it. Which one is it? Liz asked. Is it Weebo or Lenny? I leaned over the crab and, mindful of the pincers, carefully placed it in the palm of my hands. It had a spiky yellow shell and it protested with a high-pitched ch How'd you get out, little guy? I carefully carried it back to the living room and its aquarium home. Here you go, I said, but abruptly froze. There were already two hermit crabs inside the tank. That's weird, I thought. Hey, Liz, you're not going to believe this, but we have an extra hermit crab. More is always better, she called back. And where's the cake? Seriously, come here. We both hovered over the aquarium, utterly perplexed. You're sure you didn't buy three, she asked. No, I only bought two, I protested. Well, maybe one latched onto another. When you thought you picked up one, you really picked up a conjoined pair. Sounds like you got a good deal. Sure, I said, not completely convinced. We stood by as the three crabs scurried around the confines of their glass-enclosed home. I returned to the kitchen, opened the fridge, and put the cake into several uniform pieces. I brought the candle and two plates of cake back to the living room where I found Liz already preparing the couch for a movie. While she fussed with the blankets and pillows, I loaded up a boot-like copy of Parasite. About ten minutes into the movie, there was a terrible banshee howl of wind and the house shook violently. Seconds later, power went out. Ah, shit, I said. I was really looking forward to this movie. Whatever. Liz turned on her cell's flashlight. Let's make the best of the situation. Why don't you start a fire while I get us some more wine? That's a great idea, I said. 
and you wonder why I keep you around. I picked up the candle and took it over to the fireplace. I already had a bundle of freshly chopped wood in place and a crumpled ball of newspaper underneath. I stuck the candle in the fireplace, illuminating it with a wavering orange glow. However, just before the newspaper could ignite, I saw something moving from within. I shifted the candle toward the object and discovered yet another hermit crab. Hey, Liz? I called out. I've found another hermit crab. You're so funny. I heard her respond from the kitchen. I took the logs out of the fireplace and scrutinized the insides. To my surprise, I found that the crab was not alone. In the fireplace were three more tiny critters, all milling about in the ashes. One of them raised up their minuscule legs and expressed an adorable... Come here, I'm not kidding. Liz appeared alongside me with two full glasses in hand. We both peered into the fireplace. What the hell? She said, grinning. What kind of game are you playing, mister? I'm not playing. I I swear, this is getting weird. Just then I was interrupted by the pitter-patter sound of something small and hard bouncing its way down the chimney. It landed before us in a puff of ash. It was another hermit crab. Liz stopped smiling. So you're not doing this, right? No, of course not. Why would... Suddenly there was a jarring clatter coming from the roof. We both froze and listened. Then from above our heads came a prolonged creak, like someone was placing weight on old floorboards. It was followed by evenly spaced thumps that charted a path across our ceiling. Was that the wind, or footsteps? Liz asked, her voice tinged with concern. I have no idea, I said. Do you want to go look? Not really, she shrugged. It's freaking cold out there. Besides, we're not going to see much with that candle. One second, I said, stumbling into the darkness. I outstretched my arms and groped for familiar terrain. When I stubbed my toes on a table, I knew I was getting closer. Soon, I found what I was looking for. A high-powered mag light. I turned it on and blinded myself. I went back to Liz. Come on, let's put on our boots and jackets. This is when you offer to let me stay inside in the warm house while you brave the elements, right? She said, hopefully. I was afraid to admit that I didn't want to go out alone. Instead, I said, Come on, it'll just be for a moment. Aren't you curious about all these damn hermit crabs? As if to punctuate my words with foreboding, the wind howled menacingly and the walls trembled against the onslaught. She scrunched her face with disappointment and continued zipping up her jacket. All suited up, I eased open the front door and we both shielded our eyes from the immediate gust of frozen particulate. Together we shuffled across the frigid front porch and onto the snow-covered front yard. I scanned the horizon with my flashlight and was met with an impenetrable whiteout. None of the homes which lined the cul-de-sac were visible through the icy tempest, and with the power out, the streetlights were black and lifeless. I scanned the horizon with my flashlight and was met with an impenetrable whiteout. None of the homes which lined the cul-de-sac were visible through the icy tempest, and with the power out, the streetlights were black and lifeless. We were standing in the center of our front yard when I raised the flashlight toward the roof and shone it in the direction of our chimney. Liz gasped and dropped the light in surprise. What the fuck is that? She exclaimed. I fumbled with the flashlight and then aimed it back toward the roof. Despite the blizzard, there was no doubt about what we were looking at. Hanging onto the chimney, twenty feet above us, was the unmistakable form of a man. Holy shit. There's someone up there. I said, pausing for a moment while I focused on the most striking feature of the stranger. What is he wearing? 
Liz, hiding behind me, peeked out. Nothing? She was right. Except for a large burlap sack, which he held onto, the man appeared to be completely naked. What is he doing up there? I asked. Transfixed by the spectacle, we watched as he reached his arm into the bag, and then he pulled out something that was round and small, and proceeded to drop it into our chimney. So, that explains the hermit crabs, I said. Liz began pacing in the snow, becoming frantic. That guy is going to freeze to death up there. We gotta do something, right? What are we gonna do? I stepped forward and shouted. Hey! What are you doing up there? The man did not respond, and with the din of the storm, I doubt he could hear me. Instead, he once more reached into his large sack and deposited another hermit crab into our chimney. I inhaled deeply, the cold air coating my lungs, and called again. Hey! You can't be up there! What the hell are you doing? Liz joined me in shouting. You're going to freeze to death, you crazy idiot! She clung to me and I could feel her body trembling, but I wasn't sure if it was from the cold or something else. I'm going to call the police. I handed Liz the flashlight, took off my gloves, and grabbed my phone out of my pocket. Unfortunately, when I tried to dial 911, my hands were too numb to operate the phone. I breathed warmed air into my cupped hands to no effect. Okay, this isn't working, I said. I'm going to run inside real quick and make the call. Stay here and watch this guy, alright? I'll be right back. What? You want me to stay out here? She blurted, clearly not happy with the prospect of being left alone. I'll just be a moment, I promise. I kissed her on the top of her toque-encased head and ran back toward the front door, leaving deep, foot-shaped impressions on the snow. Before entering... I turned around and saw Liz standing rigid and pointing the flashlight toward the roof. I'll be quick, I shouted. If she heard me, she didn't react. As soon as I was inside, I ripped off my gloves and planted my hands under my armpits in an attempt to revive them. Then I turned on my cell phone and dialed the police. No signal. I waved from the phone wildly in the air, hoping that this gesture would somehow encourage my phone to connect to a nearby tower. Shit, shit, shit. I cursed in machine gun secession. I'd have to use the landline, but it was across the house, deep in the dark bowels of the living room. I turned on my cell's flashlight, still in my winter boots, stomped a wet path across the carpet. Just before reaching the phone, I stepped forward and heard a loud crunch. I stopped, aimed the light toward the ground, and found that beneath my thick rubber heel, I had crushed a hermit crab. I panned the light toward the ground in front of me and found a nearly dozen hermit crabs, all scurrying in different directions. I carefully navigated around them and picked up my phone. There was no dial tone. I tried 911, but the effort was in vain. The house phone was just as useless as my cell. Just great, I mumbled. Mindful of the minefield of crabs, I ran back to the front door and returned to the snowy maelstrom outside. Liz, I can't get a signal. Liz? I scanned the front yard, but she wasn't there. A beam of light shone like a pillar from where I'd seen her last standing. Liz! I shouted. Where are you? I trudged through the snow toward the light. I bent over and found the mag light, a thin blanket of snow already covering it. Liz! I called out again, but to no response. I picked up the flashlight and lit up the area around me. No Liz. Then I aimed the flashlight toward the roof and found that the naked man was gone. All that remained was the large brown sack. What the hell? I shouted. This wasn't like Liz. Her wandering off into the dark snowstorm was not an idea I could readily contemplate. Liz! 
I yelled again and again. I spun in a circle, trying to see through the blizzard, but her familiar shape was absent. My throat grew hoarse, and I fell to my knees in a coughing fit. That's when I found a raid on the ground before me, a series of Liz-sized footprints, all chaotically mingled together and quickly filling with snow. He's would tell me where she went, I thought. I saw that most of the prints were centered in a clump in the front yard where Liz and I first saw the man on the roof. I scanned the periphery of the yard, looking for more steps that led away from the center. Success. I found a single set of footprints sunk deep into the snow. I followed them as they snaked their way toward the side of the house. That's when I discovered a long metal ladder resting against the side of the house. It must have been the means by which the naked man climbed up onto our roof. The footprints stopped at the ladder's base. Did Liz go up the ladder? I wondered. No, I couldn't imagine that. However, the evidence suggested otherwise. If those were her prints, then clearly she climbed up. Where else could she have gone? I knew... I had to ascend the ladder, but my heart pounded so hard I was getting dizzy. I did not want to go up there in the darkness, buffeted by violent winds and pelted by snow, only to be greeted by some deranged, naked man. I placed my foot on the lowest rung, clenched my teeth, and commenced the climb. I made slow progress. It felt like the wind chill flash froze my eyes. Every few feet, my clumsy boots would slip and I'd fall back to the previous step. After what seemed like a frozen eternity, I reached the top of the ladder and, holding on for dear life, I gingerly crawled off onto the roof. While this particular section was flat, I did not feel safe up there. Up here, the winds were even more relentless, buffeting me on all sides with a barrage of icy slaps. Mindful of the ice and the elevation, I stepped toward the chimney and inspected the area with my flashlight. There was zero sign of Liz. Around the base of the chimney, I found where the snow was disturbed by the naked man. There, I found his large brown sack, the same one that we saw him reach into. I inched closer, trying not to slip and picked up the bag. I held it at arm's length like a used diaper and then turned it over and dumped out the contents. Dozens of hermit crabs came tumbling out. There was no doubt that the naked man was dropping hermit crabs down our chimney. The question of why, however, was still a mystery and I was still no closer to finding Liz. Liz, where the hell are you? I backed away from the chimney toward the edge of the roof, and from this vantage point, I should have been able to see all around for miles. Instead, I was encased by an opaque white dome. Once more, I shouted, Liz! at the top of my lungs, but my words were eaten by the maelstrom of wind and snow. I sensed movement from the corner of my eye. I spun around just in time to watch the top of the ladder disappear off the edge of the roof. Oh, fuck! I exclaimed, scrambling back toward the descending ladder. In my haste, my feet lost traction and I ended up slipping on the ice, landing precariously close to the eaves troughing. On my hands and knees, I crawled toward the roof's edge. I glanced down toward the ground and found the naked man placing the ladder on it. You son of a bitch! Put the ladder back up! I shouted. I watched helplessly as he disappeared into the backyard. Now I was truly screwed. I had to get down without the ladder and without badly injuring myself. I was at least 20 feet off the ground, high enough that I could guarantee an injury if I landed wrong. Peering over the edge, I was jolted by a terrified scream that came beneath me. Stay away! Stop! Put that down! It was Liz, and it sounded like it was coming from back inside our home. 
Her shouting was followed by a bang of the door slamming and the violent crash of dishes. Then abruptly, the commotion stopped. Liz is in danger. I have to act now. I scanned frantically for the best spot to land. Is that a snowbank? I wondered. Below me were a series of bushes enshrouded with snow. I was about to hurl myself off the roof when I was struck by a crucial question. Were these bushes surrounded by ornate spikes? As I reflected, I realized that there were plenty of very pointy objects down there on the ground, all obscured by snow and ready to pierce my skin and organs on impact. From inside the house, I heard another scream and lost all self-control. I flung myself off the roof and, as expected, landed hard. I must have smashed my head because I blacked out on impact. I don't know how long I was out for, but it was long enough for the wind and falling snow to largely subside. As I groggily regained consciousness, I was greeted by severe pain in my ankle. I couldn't tell through my snow boots whether it was sprained or broken, but given the unnatural position it rested, it was safe to say it was the latter. I tried to get back on my feet, but I was so overcome with pain and dizziness that I collapsed back onto my face. Thoughts of Liz soon entered my adult brain, and I remembered that I had to get into the house and save her. Once more, adrenaline surged into my body and numbed some of the pain as I reached out my gloved hands and dragged myself toward the front door. It was slow going, and my leg protested every inch of progress, but finally, I made it to the porch. I could see that the front door was partially ajar as a sliver of light shone from the frame. I drew closer and extended my arm toward the door handle when it slammed shut, followed by the click of a deadbolt. Shit, I cursed, wrenching futilely at the now-locked knob. I knew more than anything that I needed to get inside to help Liz. Breaking through the window, I thought. I found an empty flower pot and hurled it toward the front window. Sadly, the flower pot shattered on impact while the window remained firm under a spider whip of glass. I took hold of another flower pot but discovered that within my injuries, I could barely lift it off the ground. My head started throbbing, and I fell to the floor. What was I expecting to do when I got inside anyways? Fight off the naked man? I wondered. I couldn't even stand on my own two feet, let alone stand up to an intruder. I needed another plan. And then it struck me. The neighbors. Someone had to be home. On a nice day, it was only a short walk to the next house over. Now, through an ocean of accumulated snow and ice, it was certain to be long and painful hobble, but still, it was a plan. I gritted my teeth and started toward the house next door. I dragged myself down the highway, leaving a fissure in the snow like a plowed field. I stopped at the curb to catch my breath. That's when I noticed, directly in front of me, something small, slowly inching a steady progress across the snow-covered cul-de-sac. Must be another hermit crab, I thought. As I drew closer, I realized this crab didn't have the same type of shell as Weebo and Lenny. In fact, it wasn't a shell at all. Rather, the critter was encased with what looked like a hunk of raw steak. I backed away and tried not to vomit, and then I noticed the long crimson snail trail of blood and viscera that followed in its wake. That final discovery was too much. I turned my face to the snow and retched. The critter issued a ch, -ch, -ch sound in protest and continued on its way. After avoiding most of that evening's spaghetti, I soon realized that the abomination before me wasn't the only gore-encased crab. My hands shaking, I panned the flashlight across the cul-de-sac, revealing many more, each ponderously crossing the snow and coloring the road red like a team of disgusting meat crayons. They all seemed to be heading toward the center of the cul-de-sac, their passage marked in the snow like unsettling spokes on a wheel. I tried to put aside this visual atrocity and continued trudging through the snow until I arrived at the end of my neighbor's driveway. Almost there, I thought. Soon as I was on their front porch and just about to knock on the door, I heard screams and the clatter of a violent struggle coming from inside. I eased my fist away from the door. 
I'm too late. I backed away from the door and saw movement from above me. I glanced up toward the house on my left and saw the naked man on the roof. Once more, he was straddling the chimney with another large brown sack. If he's up there, I pondered, then who's inside? With the break in the storm, I could see clearly all the homes around me. I shone the mag light onto the remaining houses in the cul-de-sac and found more naked men likewise stationed on the rooftops. My god, there's more of them? My mind reeled at the implications. My neighborhood was under assault by deranged, hermit-crab-wielding nudists. I collapsed onto my neighbor's steps, pondering my next move. The phones were dead, I was in immediate danger, the neighbors were being terrorized, and I was too injured to make a getaway. I glanced back toward my home, and I saw the impression of my car under the blanket of snow. That's it, I thought. I'd drive to safety. But how would I start the damn thing? I remembered that I always kept a set of car keys in my jacket. With frozen hands, I patted myself down and fished my stiff fingers into my jacket pockets. Success. I pulled out a pair of car keys. Now for the long journey there. Once more, I dragged myself back to my property, doing my best to navigate around half a dozen blood-soaked crab lines. All around me, I was ranged by the muffled screams and calls for help coming from the inside of the surrounding homes. I have to ignore their cries, I tell myself. Exhausted, I arrived beside my car. Using my arms as a brush, I wiped away a sizable clump of snow on the side of the car, and then I wrenched open the driver's side door. Wincing from the effort, I pulled myself onto the car and slammed the door shut behind me. Inside, I relished in the silence because I could no longer hear my neighbors pleading in desperate agony. Now, all I wanted to do was close my eyes and let the spinning world settle for just one moment, but I knew that I had to move. I turned the key in the ignition and the car rumbled as it came to life. I turned on the windshield wipers, revealing a gap in the snow. As I turned on the high beams, I discovered that I was not alone. Between the car and the garage stood Liz. I opened the car window and leaned out. Liz! Oh, thank God. Get in the car now. We need to get out of here. She didn't respond. Instead, she just stood there, motionless. Liz, did you hear me? The more I looked at Liz, the clearer it became that something was severely wrong with her. For one, she seemed to be considerably shorter than before. She was no longer wearing a jacket, revealing an excess of skin that sat loosely on her frame. I looked into her eyes and saw that her face was a horror story that hung like a deflated balloon. When she turned her head to me, her visage was as expressive as a hand puppet. Liz? I repeated. She abruptly tilted her head and made a sound that was both familiar and disturbing. couldn't believe it. It wasn't Liz. It was a goddamn hermit crab wearing Liz like an ill-fitting human skin coat. I panicked. I put the car into drive and floored the accelerator, slamming the creature into the garage door. On impact, I smashed my head on the steering wheel and once again everything went dark. Much later, I was woken to a tapping on my car window. I opened the door and felt a pair of meaty hands drag me out. Oh no, this is it, I thought. What are they going to do to me? I struggled to open my eyes as they reluctantly adjusted to the sunlight. Before me wasn't a naked man, but a uniformed police officer. What? What happened? I stammered. The cop threw me out of the hood of my car, jerked my arms around my back, and handcuffed me. Sir, you tell me. And then I saw her. I had barely registered that the cop was reading my Miranda rights. Instead, I focused upon the horror that was sandwiched in front of me. Crushed under the crumpled front end of my car was the empty sheath of my wife's skin. She looked like a sock without the foot, just an empty, lifeless flesh casing. She reminded me of a sausage with all the meat removed. 
There was a hole in her chest where it looked like something had crawled out and discarded her body like a candy wrapper or an old shell. I started thrashing on the ruined hood of my car. My mind was gone, blown away by the blizzard, never to return. It was Weebo and Lindy Kravitz, I cried. I gave her crabs and they took her off like a suit. Like a goddamn suit. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed tonight's story. I know the second one was a little off the walls, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, the title, of course, is what caught my attention when I was browsing um, Reddit looking for stories or whatever, so I thought it would be fun to read, and it turned out to be a pretty interesting story. Um, the first one also was just incredibly strange and scary. I am not a huge fan of, like the ocean in general, and I've never read any H.P. Lovecraft, but I'm sure things like The Call of Cthulhu and, and other writings of his would just absolutely terrify me, so maybe I won't read them. Maybe I will. Who knows? I want to take a second to thank all the $5 patrons and members. If you would like to have a shout-out at the end of the video, just become a member or patron for 5 bucks a month. It supports the channel, and you get your shout-out. For a dollar a month, you can get videos a day in advance, but no shout-out. You also get videos early if you do $5. Forgot to mention that. Anyway, thank you to Amethyst, Amets, Caroline, Christina Smith, CT, Deborah Tychus, Elizabeth Watkins, LSG, Furious Weasel, If in Doubt, Flat Out, Jesse, Jess, Jess, Justinia Zaromsky, Karen Parrott, Kat, Kathy Flanning, Lee Riggs, Lindsay Pruitt, Melody Evans, Melissa Berwick, Mindy Bannon, Moon Potato, Nicholas Moore, Nikki Parsons, Nora, Nova Nocturne, Patricia Rodea, Ray Clegg, Sentinel, The New On Gum 24, Tiger Princess, Triumph, and Victoria Step. Thank you all for the amazing continued support. And if I pronounced your name wrong, by the way, please just let me know. Poor Sentinel. Um, been pronouncing their name wrong for uh, ever, I think. Um, but it's fine. They told me, and I hope I pronounced it right this time. Let me know. If I've pronounced your name wrong or not. Anyway, thank you all for the amazing continued support. Have a wonderful day, evening, or afternoon, wherever you are. And as always, take care of yourselves and those around you. Good night, everyone.